Well, good morning and welcome to our first Sunday service at Frank Borman Elementary School. Yeah. I wish you could see what I'm seeing looking out. And thank you in moving with us to remind us all that a church is a body, not a building. And it's a spiritual family, not a physical facility. And whether God has us at a Nazarene church or an elementary school or Denton Baptist Temple or somewhere else, we are a group of saved sinners here to love God love one another, and love our neighbors. And that's, by His grace, what we're going to continue to do. Uh, I see some familiar faces that I haven't seen in a couple of years. Welcome back, and welcome on our first Sunday here in our new location. And our commitment here is going to be what it is since the very beginning, is that whoever God sends our way, we will love unconditionally. And it doesn't matter their age, or their gender, or their race, or their education level, or their socioeconomic status, or any other factor. If they come, they will be loved equally and treated with equal dignity because they are made in the image of God, that God loved them enough to make them and for send His Son to die for them. And because we serve such an unconditionally loving God, we love all unconditionally. And that's the providential message that God has to remind us of our calling here this morning. And so I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of James, where we will be in chapter 2, the first 13 verses. And as you find your way there, and as our parents make their way back, let me open us in a word of prayer. Father, we praise you that you are the Father of lights and the giver of all good things. We thank you for this marvelous space that we get to meet in. We thank you for the light pouring in, for the openness, for the acoustics, for the privilege of being able to meet in our local church, our local school that we're going to turn into a local church. We thank you for allowing to be able to use their sound system, to be able to access their playgrounds, their gym. Lord, you have been so kind in making this transition so smooth, and we thank you for those who have been here on Saturdays and mornings and various times getting ready. Thank you for giving us such a servant-hearted body. And Father, we do pray that nothing would ever change the DNA of our church, that because we worship and serve the God who is love, we are above all else called to be loving to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, to love our neighbors as ourselves, and to love our brothers and sisters in Christ as Christ loved the church. Let nothing ever distract us, divert us from that beautiful calling you've given us. So thank you for so providentially placing this reminder that we are to be a church that loves without partiality and bias. May these words uh, imprint even deeper in us our commitment to love equally all whom you send our way. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Uh, personal favoritism could literally be rendered receiving the face. It has the idea that we see someone, we make judgments about them, and then we treat them accordingly. Uh, many translations render this partiality bigotry, bias, giving preferential treatment to some, not others, because they're of a category that we approve of versus disapprove of. Now, this is different than deference, which is a proper courtesy that we extend to certain people in certain categories. So many of us were taught to say sir and ma'am to our elders, to give guests the first scoop and the last piece of pie, to stand up when a visitor enters into the room, and to yield our seats to uh, mamas and to those with physical needs. And that's right and proper. But what James is talking about is a bigoted, biased, prejudicial preference 
based on how people look to us. And the Bible consistently condemns any such favoritism. Second, Corinthians, or Second Chronicles 19 says, Be very careful what you do, for the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality. Proverbs 24-23 says, To show partiality in judgment is not good. Paul says to Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of His chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. The context is about treating elders who have fallen into sin. So here are people who are in prominent positions in the church, but if they fall into sin and they have been condemned of that sin by two or more witnesses, then you don't extend them partiality simply because they have a position of prominence of influence in the church. James will say blunt, blunt out in James 2.9, if you show partiality, you are committing sin. Now for us this sounds common sense. We're used to hearing this. We grew up in an egalitarian nation. But at that time, this would have sounded a bit odd and foreign. Not only was it uncustomary, it might have even been improper. Because at that time, the world was divided into Jews and Gentiles, into Roman citizens and non-citizens, into slaves and free into different classes. So you might have been of the senatorial class or of the equestrian class. And you would have worked your way down and you would syndicate, indicated this with different ways of dress. And it was appropriate to treat different people with different levels of distinction. So much so that if you were hosting a banquet, not only would you give the preferred seats to the preferred guest, they would have a different menu. So if you were invited to a banquet, those of you getting the best seats might get filet. And then somewhere around Sam's Eye, you might be getting chicken fried steak. And by the time we get to Bob, you might be getting hamburger patties. And uh, y'all in the back are probably getting some spam. Sorry, Daskums. <laughs> but that was considered right and proper because there were stations. And so many societies were built around this idea of different stations in life. So in Spain or in England or in any time with the heritage of royalty, you had royalty and commoners. You had landowners and serfs. So this idea of treating everybody equally, independently of who they are, what their wealth, their status, their birth, their pedigree, that's a Christian invention. That is something that comes from the Bible. That God our Father creates every man and every woman equally in His dignity, and therefore they are all to be treated with equal dignity and respect. That God accepts all children into His family, or is willing to adopt all, anyone into His family as a child, if they will repent and receive Jesus Christ. And we have to be equally indiscriminate in whom we receive as our brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus Christ came and offered his life to receive any who would come under him. Anyone who was weary, anyone who was heavy laden, all were welcome to come unto him. And he didn't favor rabbis and he didn't give preferential treatment to the Pharisees or to the wealthy. He was the friend of sinner. He would touch those that others considered untouchable. He made a point of opening up his life and his ministry to everyone. And we who are Christ's disciples must do the same. God the Spirit is indiscriminate in those that he is willing to regenerate and indwell. There's no vessel that the Spirit turns away from. That's too common. That's too base. That's too soiled. And if the Spirit is indiscriminate in whom he will sanctify and save, then we must be equally indiscriminate in whom we're willing to receive and to love. The Bible does not permit partiality. And one of the key themes of the book of Acts as the church is born and begins to spread is this breaking down of subdivisions that had been there for generations. And so in Acts chapter 6, the church was born at Pentecost. People are growing, it's spreading, it's expanding. 
And then all of a sudden we find out that in the daily serving of food to widows, that if you were not a Hebrew widow, but if you were a Hellenistic widow, so they could tell by your accent, they could tell by maybe your improper uh, Hebrew, that you weren't a native of Palestine, of Israel, then you didn't get the same portion of food and maybe even some were being left out of the serving of food. And can you imagine being the son or the, uh, of a mama who had lost her husband and she comes home upset? Mama, what happened? Well, I went to go get food and they didn't serve me. Was there no food to serve? No, no, the other widows got served. It's just I didn't get served. Well, why not? Because I'm a Hellenistic Jew and not a Hebrew Jew. And therefore, I didn't get an equal portion of the food. Can you imagine the indignity, the indignation, the, the anger that you would feel righteously? How dare you overlook this woman in the same category of need simply because she came from a different heritage than this other person? But that's so instinctive in us that it even appeared in the early church. And it was so significant that the apostles immediately called a public gathering and addressed it. And said, we are going to appoint seven men as elders from a Hellenistic background to make sure that everybody is treated distinctly. And as a result, here's how God favored the church. It says, the word of God kept on spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And we've seen these kind of lines before, but then we get something new. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So the people were powerfully impressed at the universal love demonstrated by the early church, that they shared each other's food, they entered each other's home. But now when you overcome these long-standing biases, that gets the priest attention. Now we get a new category of people enter in. And then in Acts 8, God sends Philip the evangelist to go and bring the gospel to the Samaritans because yes, we're going to have one church of Jews and Samaritans. We're not going to have a Jewish church and a Samaritan church anymore that we're going to have Jewish widows and Hellenistic widows. There's going to be one body because God wants everyone treated equally. And then in chapter 10, he sends Peter and he's going to have a vision. And now the gospel is going to go out to the Gentiles. And again and again, we see this breaking down of barriers so that all might be treated equally, indiscriminately. And God wiping away all the prejudicial preferences that are so deeply ingrained within us. We're prejudiced based on age. And old people complain about the young people. And young people talk about the cogity adults. We're biased based on gender. And that's longstanding. Uh, we're biased based on socioeconomic level, on how articulate a person is, on their race, on certain signals they give, whether you're of my tribe or not. But there's a particular kind of bias that is longstanding and base that James addresses. And that is namely wealth. And by the way, if you want to know what your biases are, even if you feel yourself fairly egalitarian, next time you're on a plane, and you have the empty seat beside you and you see the people coming down the aisle, tell me you're not in your mind saying, please let it be this person, not this person. <laughs> We've all done this. Several of us just came back from a trip. Every seat was full. We knew the person next to us, or we, we had middle seats, those of us who came to Israel because we were scattered all over the place. We had two people to the left and right that we were gonna sit next to for 10 hours. And in your mind, you begin to filter. Let it be this person, not this person. Let it be this type of seatmate, not this type of seatmate. Or next time you go into a DMV or a public place and you see a number of options of seats to choose from, which one do you pick and why? 
Which one do you gravitate towards or avoid? And then likewise, even in the church, when someone enters in, who do you just naturally feel gravitated towards to go and talk to, sit next to, invite to lunch versus those that maybe you'll let someone else treat them? We are naturally bigoted. We are naturally biased. We are favorable to people who are like us. We are unfavorable to people who are unlike us. And this is displeasing to God. And one of the more basic ways we do that is based on wealth. Look at verses 2 through 4. For if a man comes into your assembly, literally synagogue, another indication that these were Jewish Christians at the earliest stage of the church, with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and say, you sit here in a good place. But you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? So James paints a scenario. The church is gathered. They're there for their worship of their God and the attending of his word and the loving of the saints. And then two people walk in. And the first, you can see his gold ring at a glance. It's big enough, gaudy enough, polished enough that at a glance you see this man's got a gold ring. Which means he's obviously affluent. He's undoubtedly influential and possibly he's prominent because the gold ring was a symbol of the equestrian class. So in Roman society you had senators and right below the senators were the equestrians, like the knights, those that had horses, the soldiers. So this was a significant person. You could also see it on his clothes that they were literally shiny. They were clean. They were noticeable at a glance that they just hung right. They were made of nice material. And presumably the person would have been recently bathed. He would have smelled fragrant. He would have been well-groomed. If you went up to him, undoubtedly he would have spoken articulately. Everything about you let you know this is an affluent, successful, important person. And as a result, the person went up to him at church and said, Hey, come sit here. Front row. The acoustics are better here. There's a little bit of a draft here. The person behind you always jiggles his foot, so you want to sit over here, not here. And they give them preferential treatment based on their assessment of their affluence. Notice the other person, though. He's obviously poor. His clothes aren't just plain. Notice the contrast isn't fine and plain. It's fine and dirty. Some of your translations might say filthy, vile, soiled, stained which means he likely doesn't smell pleasant. Likely he didn't bathe that morning. Likely he didn't have access to the public baths the way that others did. His hair wasn't glistening with oil. He had no jewelry to speak of. And if he's wearing his only garments, his garments and they're stained to church, likely they're his only garments. This is the very picture of poverty. And once they assess that, the treatment's entirely different. Hey, go stand over there. Go to the corner, be out of sight, go out of a way. Or, even more indignantly, sit down at my feet. You're not even worthy of a seat. Because we don't know another gold ring, five closed visitors might come in here. They did that, and we still do that. That the greeters notice who pulls up in a Porsche and who pulls up in a Pontiac. And you notice who's wearing a Rolex versus a Timex. And we are... Even if we're not thinking about it, we are subconsciously noting whose clothes are clean or dirty, pressed or wrinkled, new or torn, 
fashionable or outdated. Shoes are scuffed or shined. Posture is erect or slouched. Confident, maybe a little bit timid. Good dental work, poor dental work. Smells nice, doesn't smell nice. Sends off signals of success or sends off signals of not success. We do the exact same thing. When we had our Dina Family Fun Nights, actually it was our uh, neighborhood night out last year, and we were all there inviting our neighbors, and there were so many people that came, and then Sam would come up to me, John, the mayor's here. And the mayor was there, and there was a cluster of people around the mayor. And then someone said, the police chief's here, and there's a cluster around the police chief. And there's, and certain people who came were more important than others. And they immediately got our leaders who were coming to them, making way. Uh, I remember the first time a person came here she was the face of an organization. Her picture was on a billboard. And the first Sunday she came, someone said, so-and-so's here. Can you believe so-and-so's here? And sometimes the buzz will come. This business owner, this executive, this famous person. We do the exact same thing now as we did back then. We just covered up better, some of us. And he says, when you're doing that, you are making judging, judging with evil motives you're evaluating who might be able to help me or not. Who might be a big giver or not. Who might have connections worth cultivating or not. Who might be a pleasant lunch partner or not. They're mercenary motives. We're evaluating people based on my assessment of what can you do for me. And based on what you can do for me, I might do something nice for you in return. Uh, it's just the way the world works. You curry favor among those who can give favor, and you ignore those who can't do anything for you. We have a friend named Senator Barnes, and early in their marriage, Senator and his wife Sarah would sometimes call when they had hotel reservations, and Sarah would say to the hotel receptionist, uh, Senator Barnes will be arriving this afternoon, wondering if you have an upgrade for him. Well, no one knows the name of their senator, national much less state. So they would almost always get upgrades because if a senator was coming, then now that might do something for you if you treated them right. So they would. Get, so those of you with some uh, babies coming, you might think about prince, princess, king, queen. <laughs> but a senator got treatment the commoners didn't. We do that, and it's base. But because it's so ingrained in us, James goes on to give us three reasons why we mustn't show personal favoritism based on our prejudicial biases. The first is in verse five. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. God doesn't judge people the way the world does. The world does. God judges the heart. God sees the faith. He doesn't see the exterior handsomeness or beauty, the affluence or poverty. And those who are wealthy often feel like they need to trust God less. If you're not worrying where your next house or apartment payment is coming from, you don't pray about it. If you don't worry about how you're going to feed your kids the next meal, you don't pray about it. We just assume, I've got this, unless some unexpected crisis comes, and then I'll send out the flare to God. But for the poor who depend upon God for their meal, for their roof, for their clothing, for everything, they learn to trust and they grow in faith. And faith is what God values, not external affluence. God makes some to be rich and gives them stewardship over those possessions. God makes many to be poor, but they can be rich in faith, and that's what's important. Elijah was poor. Elisha was poor. 
John the Baptist, can you imagine him showing up into the embassy suites or to the Anatole with his camel hair and his leather belt and his locust breath? And he would have been escorted off the premises, but that was the great man of God greater than any prophet. When God's son came on earth, Jesus was born into a poor family. When they gave the dedicatory sacrifice, it was a bird because that's all that they could afford. He grew up a laborer, and then he was a laborer. And at the end of his life, Jesus had one garment that they were casting dice for to see who would claim it. Jesus was not affluent. Peter was not affluent. When he's there going into the temple and someone shouts out for alms, and he says, silver and gold, I have none. But I do have this. I have the faith that can move a mountain or help a, le a lame man leap in joy to God. God values faith, and faith often comes in the form of the poor. And therefore, we need to view people by God's values, not the world's values. Secondly, the rich are often those who oppress others and blaspheme God. Look at verses 6 and 7. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? Those who are externally wealthy oftentimes use that wealth to oppress others. Or they don't feel like they need God and therefore they can defame God openly or in various ways with their shameful lifestyles. James is going to come back to this point in chapter 5 when he says in verses 1 and following, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you should have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. You've lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He doesn't resist you. James says those who have wealth often abuse that wealth. And even though they could pay their workers, they often don't. And of course that raises the question, have we ever not paid someone who's done something for us? They use their wealth to indulge in luxurious lifestyles to the neglect of those who are in need around them. And we, most of us, have very comfortable lifestyles. And we feel our money is ours to spend to indulge in our pleasures to the neglect of those who are in righteous need against us. And then they would use their power and influence to gain favor in court against those who couldn't afford a good attorney. And they would further exploit them and take advantage of them. And God says, that is hateful, that is blasphemous. And so why are you currying favor with that person? That may be the very person who dishonors me and is oppressing you. And Christians want the world to think well of us. Now, there was a time when evangelicals were very excited when politicians gave us attention. And we thought, now we get invited to political conventions. Now we get a place at the table. Now we can do some things that would make changes around here. But the politicians didn't care about Christ or the gospel. They just wanted our vote. And to curry their favor, it put us into positions where we often neglected the evangelism and the service that God had called us to do. And academics, when someone who is influential in the world of academics gives a little bit of attention to an evangelical scholar, it feels good. It feels good to get the notice. It feels good to get the attention. It feels great to get the recognition and the affirmation. And as a result, 
sometimes they're tempted to trim their message a bit or to accommodate their teaching. So anytime we're trying to curve favor with the rich and the powerful and the influential, it's often with those who don't really have our best interest in mind and certainly don't love the Lord. Rather, we should value those whom God values, those who are rich in faith. Thirdly, James says, showing favoritism is a sin because it breaks God's law to love our neighbor as ourself. He says in verse 8, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. Now, the royal law is the law that came from royalty, from King God, who on Mount Sinai gave Moses his decrees, his commands for his people. And out of all the do's and not do's, the one that James pulls out is love your neighbor as yourself. And when you show preferential treatment for someone because of your bigotries and biases, whenever you favor the rich against the poor, you are violating God's command to love your neighbor as yourself, and that is a sin. But he starts positively. You want God to be pleased with you. You want to do well. If you want to do well, love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't that liberating? You're not a salesperson that has to evaluate the people who come in the door to see if they're worth your time or not. You're not the person on the, the car lot who has to evaluate which salesman you assign which person based on the car they drove up. You just get to love everyone alike, whomever God puts in front of you. Because that's what a biblical definition of a neighbor is. In the Good Samaritan, Jesus says, who is our neighbor? What's whomever God puts in our path? You just simply have to love whomever God puts in your path and love them as you would love yourself. And isn't that liberating? Doesn't that simplify your day? What would God have of you this day? Love everyone that he puts in your path. Um, I just got back late last night from my father-in-law's memorial service. So a week ago yesterday, my father-in-law passed and we were with him in the hospital when he uh, breathed his last. And then we were there yesterday when they pushed the body into the crematorium. And the message that impressed itself upon me there in the hospital room, and then again there at the door of the crematorium, was we need to love everyone we can, as we can, when we can, while we can, because there's going to come a time when we can't. Um, I thought of the times and the ways that I could have loved my father-in-law better. And by the time we got back to his hospital bed, he wasn't conversing, he wasn't aware. And there were missed opportunities. And I did, I just sat there in the hospital room and thought, we need to love everyone we can, as we can, when we can, while we can, because there's coming a time when we can't. And then when they turned the key on the furnace and you could hear the flames come up that was going to remove that body. And I looked at my hands that God is innervating now, this miraculous machine that God gives us to interact with the world. And this is only here for a while. And for those of us who are getting a little bit older, some of us don't have the energy that we did to serve in ways that we did before. Uh, a gentleman and I were out the other night driving in his golf cart, checking in all the sheep in the neighborhood. And while we were there, someone says, hey, can you two gentlemen help move a washer and dryer? And we kind of looked at each other, nope. <laughs> 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 the spirit's willing, but the body's weak, and our backs can't move washer dryers no more. So while I can and could, I should have, because there's coming a time we won't be able to. This is our calling, brothers and sisters, to love everyone we can, as we can, while we can, when we can, because there's coming a time when we can't. And we're to love equally. Everyone. 
and it's so beautiful when we see it. Uh, when I volunteered at Vision Ministries and got to know Tracy Jacobson, Tracy Jacobson loves every human on the planet indiscriminately. Everyone who walks in. So Vision Ministries worked with lower income families and Tracy was equally enthusiastic and joyful to see everyone who walked in that door. And it didn't matter if it was Jeff Bezos, they would have gotten the same treatment as the anonymous person who came in off the street. And Tracy taught me something about joyfully loving all equally. And everybody loved to be with Tracy because Tracy loved all equally. Uh, my children had a chance to spend a month with their aunt in Shanghai. And my sister-in-law Fong worked with a place called the Renewal Center, which was an outreach to homeless people in Shanghai. So there are so many, there are, the homeless population of Shanghai is greater than the population of Houston. And they, they go to the dumps and they get what they can, but the Renewal Center offers them a clean shower, a good meal, job training skills that they can translate into connections to get a job maybe in a restaurant. And these people who have nothing, when they come off the street, they look really rugged. But they're not ministered, they're, they're clients is the term they give them. And they're all treated with equal dignity and respect. And they're all loved alike. And as a result, many of them come to know the Lord. Uh, I was talking to someone in this church who came to my house last week, and they had a chance to go to Israel in 2015, and then they were back in Israel at Pentecost. And they showed me a picture at their dinner table in 2015 where two people from Holland were there with a Jewish lady that they had led to the Lord. And then they were there at Pentecost, and they saw the same two ladies. God providentially put them in the same path at a different time, five years later, and they were talking about the other Jews that they had led to the Lord. And they said, do you know the secret to Jewish evangelism? And they said, no, but we'd love to hear Love them unconditionally. Love them unconditionally. You don't have to know how all the feasts and the festivals correspond to the gospel. If you love them unconditionally, that's enough. And can I tell you a secret? That's the secret to evangelizing everybody. <laughs> What's the secret to evangelizing people of the LGBTQ community? Love them unconditionally. What's the way to love addicts and alcoholics? Love them unconditionally. What's the way for us as a relatively educated body to reach into our less educated neighborhood? Love them unconditionally. Everyone who walks in that door is our neighbor and we will love them as we love ourselves. As we love ourselves. Because that's what our God commands of us. And if we don't, make no mistake, we are disobeying and defying Him. Which is what James goes on to say. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin. Let me say that again. <laughs> When we show partiality, we are committing sin. And therefore, we are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, our response is, yeah, but everybody commits partiality. It's not like I'm a murderer. It's not like I'm an adulterer. And James immediately removes that rationalization. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Not that if you break one commandment, you're guilty of breaking every commandment, but you now become a lawbreaker. So if you break in your mind a misdemeanor, it doesn't mean that you've committed all the felonies, but you're a lawbreaker. And God holds us accountable to that. Do you not know if you commit adultery but do, not, but do commit murder, you've become a transgressor of the law? So let's assume that you hear one of your children crying. And you go in and he says, my brother hit me. 
and you get ready to reprimand the older sibling, and the older sibling says, I didn't steal the cookie. That's not the point. I'm not talking about cookies. Did you hit your brother? Well, I didn't steal the car keys. It wasn't me that put paint on the wall. We're not talking about that. You hit your brother, and that's the crime. I'm going to punish you for it. If you go to court to appeal a speeding ticket, and the judge says, were you doing 75 in a 40? And your response is, I didn't trespass at all, Your Honor. I've never trespassed on public property. It's utterly irrelevant. It doesn't matter. I'm talking about your infraction that you did commit. It doesn't matter if you didn't commit what was a worse crime in your eyes. You are a lawbreaker in God's eyes, and he's going to hold us accountable for that. And God thinks partiality is a really big deal. When someone that he made in his image, formed in his mother's womb, and loves enough to send his son to die for them, walks in, and they are slighted, ignored, mistreated, God knows that. And if we never do it verbally, if there's never, uh, you go stand over there, but in my heart, I decide to let someone else go greet them, to kind of scooch over my seat so that apparently empty seat doesn't appear as they walk down the aisle, even though I'll make room if someone else comes along. We do it in various ways, and guess what? God sees it all, and it's reprehensible in his eyes. Instead, Paul says, so speak and so act, and this is in a Greek tense that means ongoing action. Uh, customarily speak, characteristically act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Now, a few weeks ago, that phrase, law of liberty, appeared in our text, and Brian gave a great illustration of how in Peru, where they're looser with the traffic laws, it's actually less liberating because now you have to worry about everyone breaking the traffic laws and not just you. Uh, you may have heard the joke about someone who was driving with a friend, blatantly ran through a red light. And the guy goes, what are you doing? He said, well, my brother taught me to drive, and he always runs red lights. And this happens a couple of times. Then they come to a green light, and he slams on the brake, and he looks over, he goes, my brother might be coming the other way. <laughs> and it's one thing if you think you're the only one breaking the law, but if everybody does it, it's confining, it's constricting. So God gives us laws to liberate us, but we will be judged by them. And the fact that we are forgiven, the fact that we are saved, the fact that that is based on Christ and His righteousness and not our own does not mean that there won't be a reckoning for God's children as well. Jesus said, The Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels and will then repay every person according to their deeds. Peter says this, If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Peter's addressing believers. He's very clear that we are saved not by works, but by grace, not by our righteousness, but by Christ. And that salvation, once ours, is secure, but that doesn't mean there's not accounting for God's children someday. And therefore, we are to live in the fear of the reckoning that we will give to God when we stand before Him someday. And that means every ugly emotion, every bigoted thought, every prejudicial look, every subtle act that we thought no one noticed, God sees. And we'll be accountable to that. But He will also reward those who love all equally, who were willing to receive the unlovely and not just the lovely, just like He rewards those who receive His Son, a man of sorrows who wasn't much to look at, 
and yet God loved those who would receive him. Tomorrow is July 4th when we celebrate the signing of the Declaration of Independence that begins with that beautiful statement, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And that was a novel statement for the colonialists to make because they came from countries that wasn't the case. That wasn't the case in England. You weren't all created equal. It was based on your pedigree. In Spain, all weren't created equal. In France, all weren't created equal. In the Netherlands, all weren't created equal. But here in this new land, we built a new country based on the affirmation that all were going to be created equal. And Lady Justice was going to be blindfolded so that she wouldn't see a difference between rich and poor. And Lady Liberty was going to hold up her torch to invite all the poor, the tired, the huddled masses who were longing to be free. And that's part of what makes us a great nation. And then it's what makes our failures to live up to that so shameful and tragic and painful. But long before 1776, the church was the first truly egalitarian institution. And the charter of the church was that everybody was going to be treated alike. That Christ died to break down the barrier of the dividing wall, separating Jew from Gentile. And then he made one church of Jew and Gentile and Samaritan. And that in Christ there is neither male nor female, slave nor free. The church is the great egalitarian institution. And we don't put on blindfolds so we don't see. We look at everybody open-eyed. And if they're dirty, and if they're poor, it matters not one whit. And if it looks like they've come from a rough background and they're recovering from obvious sin, it matters not one whit because we're wretched sinners also. And if it looks like they've had a tough background, a tough life, made poor choices, we open-eyed and open-armed love them because we've made bad choices and we've defied God as well. And He was merciful to us and we will be merciful to others. And much more beautiful than a lady lifting up a torch is Christ stretching out his arms at crucifixion in order to invite and welcome all who would come, any who are weary and heavy laden. And that beautiful message of the gospel, of an unconditional grace offered indiscriminately to any who would come, is validated or invalidated by the indiscriminate love that we show to others. God our Father loves indiscriminately, and so must we. God the Son loves indiscriminately, and so must we. God the Spirit loves indiscriminately, and so must we. Brothers and sisters, we must not hold our faith in Jesus Christ with an attitude of favoritism. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you, who are perfectly lovely, love the unlovely. We thank you that you loved us when we did not love you. And that you sent the most lovely thing in heaven, your son, to come to earth and to become a human being so that after he was mocked and scorned, after he was beaten and abused, after he was crucified and died, that he would rise victorious over death and now offers full and free salvation to any who come to him. And one day in that heavenly chorus, there will be worship of God the Creator and God the Savior from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And yet, Father, we are sinful and we are worldly and we are fleshly and that means that we are biased and bigoted and prejudiced. And we all have them. And so we ask your forgiveness. We pray that you would purify us, sanctify us, help us to love others with the love of Christ, with the love that Christ loved us with, that we might represent you well and serve you well in our community and not hinder with our actions and our attitudes any who might come unto you. Let us be an indiscriminately loving church, we pray. 
In your son's name, amen.